Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we sold and donated millions of pairs. To sell and donate a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up, adding comfort innovations along the way. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate millions of pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash comfy. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Hey, welcome to Energy Matters. I'm Tim Eccles, and we always want to help you save money on your power bill to live a more sustainable life and to use technology in a wise way. I'm Tim Eccles. I'm the host of Energy Matters Live, my co-host Casey Boyce, and we're going to be talking uh, for this segment about Texas and what's happened in Texas. Casey, uh, any way you look at it, it's a tragedy. Uh, I, I mean, for sure. We've got time to figure out what happened. Uh, there's a lot of blame going around out there, but right now they just need to fix it. Why don't you tell us how Texas differs uh, from Georgia in terms of the, the, the way their energy planning system is set up? You know, this is important context to, to think about when you're thinking about what's happening in Texas. So one of the big issues is that Texas has its own grid, uh, unlike pretty much anywhere else in the country where grids are interconnected. And so why that is an issue is that there are very limited opportunities in Texas to import power from other states. So while you know someone in New Mexico might have power, they can't get it across the state line to Texans who need it. So that's one, one challenge that they're facing. Um, the other piece of Texas's electric uh, market really is worth noting. And, and while this isn't something that you know really is related to the, the power outages, uh, their market has been deregulated more than any other market in the U.S. And it's, it's kind of similar to Georgia's natural gas market, Tim, where you've got generators that uh, generate power based on market conditions. You've got monopoly utilities that distribute the power, uh, much like Atlanta Gaslight does here in Georgia for natural gas. And then you've got retail energy providers or retail electric providers that are actually the companies that customers buy their power from. Um, so, you know, that's how they're structured. And again, it's not really something that, you know, was a cause of uh, the outages, but uh, certainly makes uh, makes it an interesting place to watch. You know, I, I was asked uh, by several media folks about uh, about how Georgia is different. Could this happen in Georgia? What do we have in place to keep it from happening? And uh, Casey, yeah. I guess, you know, it, it is impossible to plan for all risk scenarios, right? I mean, I'm, I mean, the more you plan for them, the more it costs. And let me just right. give you an example. Let me just give you an example. When the pandemic started, uh, every store I went in, I don't know about you, but every store I went in, they were either out of toilet paper or they were rationing, rationing it in, in some way. Uh, how about you? Did you did you experience that? We did. You know, my, my wife had the foresight to stock up on toilet paper, so we, we didn't have issues. But yeah, I saw the same thing that you and everyone else did. A lot of empty so shelves. One of the things that that we've done in energy planning with with Georgia Power is we have set a very high reserve margin. Uh, and uh, we've been criticized for the reserve margin, Casey, because in order to have plants that are spending and ready to go and have these additional reserves, you decide not to close this plant. No, we're going to keep it in reserve. It costs money, right? It, it, and, it, mm-hmm. and, and that gets baked into into rates. And in fact, our, our winter uh, peak reserve, and we essentially upped it in 2019. We upped it to 26%. And I mean, let's just put it in the toilet paper uh, vernacular. So uh, would you expect uh, every grocery store and every drugstore to have a little pod or a semi-truck in back of their store with just toilet paper, right? 25% of what they would normally have on the shelf, just in case, 
we have a pandemic and that toilet paper stays out there no matter what. You don't use it until you are in a toilet paper crisis, right? And so that's essentially what we have done with energy in Georgia. We have 26% extra that people are paying for. Uh, and it is it is it is put aside for emergencies just like this. And Casey, I don't know that that any business school and certainly not the one you went to at Georgia State would say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea to rent a semi trailer and stock it full of toilet paper and keep it out there for for what? A 100 year event. Are you going to leave it out there? Right. The strategic strategic toilet paper reserves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with energy, we have deemed it so important and so essential to life and health and business and economic development that we have created this substantial reserve margin. And that market in Texas has a much slimmer reserve margin. Uh, you know, I guess in part, Casey, when you have a regulated utility like Georgia Power that owns their own generation, they own their own distribution lines, they, they do everything. So it's, I guess it's easier for them in this scenario to be able to justify that, right? So they've got all of this extra emergency preparedness money. They they can do they can do the gold plated preventive maintenance program, right? They can they can keep this plant uh, alive and going and staffed, even though we hardly ever use it. Um, but when you're in a market like Texas, and these plants are competing on price, I mean that makes it harder, doesn't it? Yeah. So in Texas, another thing that I should clarify here for listeners is that the market just pays for energy. So that's the the kilowatt hours or the megawatt hours or whatever. And there are other markets in the U.S. where generators get paid for capacity. So much like you described Georgia Power having generation ready to go if we need it, there are other markets in the U.S. where generation is paid to just be there if it's needed. Right. And that's not the case in Texas. And so, you know, there's kind of two things going on here. One is that there's not a lot of an economic incentive to overbuild on generation. You've got to run it. You've got to get paid to make the numbers work. The flip side of it is that, you know, when this cold snap hit and generation started shutting down and people demanded more electricity because, hey, it's cold out and you want to be warm. Every generator that could was running because they were getting paid lots and lots of money because the supply versus demand was just that constrained. So this was not a case of power plants sitting there idle, not being used. It was a case of everything that could was running full tilt. And there were uh, there were some other issues at play here that we'll talk about. In a yeah, moment. those prices, if you think about our our cheap solar out in the field that we pay just about three, a little over three cent. Uh, for uh, per uh, for for kilowatt, the the energy in Texas was it was up to about ninety, wasn't it? What what, what was it going for on Monday? ERCOT, which is the market operator in Texas, um, they actually have a price cap at nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour. Um, and so just to put that into perspective, that's about $9 per kilowatt hour, right? And you think about retail rate here in Georgia is about 12 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's way up wow. there. 12 cent versus, what did you say, $9? About $9, yeah. yeah. So everybody was running that could. And it seemed like everything that could go wrong, and they're not, at the time of this recording, they're not out of this yet. Casey, right? You got snow sitting on solar panels. You've got older wind turbine turbines that don't have a de-icing mechanism on the blade. You've got a nuclear power plant that tripped because of a malfunctioning pump. You've got you've got coal plants that supposedly the coal piles had frozen. You've got natural gas that's being restricted from power plants because so many people are using it in their home, right? It was just one thing after another, not to mention possible downed lines, right? Explain the difference between, say, an outage because of a downed line 
versus an outage because a power plant down the road has been tripped and it's not operating? Yeah. So with a downline, you know, you, you literally can't get the power to where it needs to go. Right. And that's a lot of what we experience here in Georgia when we have storms come through and things like that. Right. And then the power company has to go put the lines back up. And of course, really dangerous conditions for line workers to be doing that in the cold and ice uh, that, that they're experiencing in Texas. With the power plant tripping, the issue there is that, as we've talked about before, we the grid operators have to balance supply and demand in real time. There's no wiggle room there or, or very bad things happen, right? And so if the, the power plant trips offline, then you either need to have another power plant ready to come online or you need to reduce demand. And what they've had to do in Texas is reduce demand by turning off people's power. Um, and, you know, Tim, you, you hit the nail on the head here, right? Like there are a lot of people that are rushing to blame, you know, one generation source or another. Um, and that's not the case. It w- Nobody was prepared for this. Um, and so it was something that was system wide. It impacted every kind of generation, whether it was renewables, fossil, nuclear in Texas. And it's just a really bad situation all around. You know, Casey, as I think about my priorities as a regulator, I mean, certainly reliability, and I've said it for 10 years, it's, it's, it's my number one goal. It's more important than it being clean. It's more important than it being cheap. Uh, it's more important than reducing CO2. It's having the power when we need it because at the end, at, at the end of the day or the night, it's, it's the loss of life that's happening out there. People freezing, freezing mm-hmm. to death and, and having other accidents as they try to heat themselves. So, uh, But I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. My host, Casey Boyce. He's at Casey Boyce on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Tim Eccles, the shows at Matters Radio. And Casey, you've got a great on-the-road segment coming up. Tell us about our guest uh, in segments two, three, and four today. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking to Andy Myers in the next couple of segments here about wind power. And Texas, of course, a leader in wind power. But we're going to talk about what he's doing up in the Northeast and some of the offshore wind uh, that's happening there and you know the potential maybe to bring some offshore wind here to Georgia and, and what that might look like. That's great. Hey, everybody, stick around. Casey's going to be back with a fantastic interview. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Green Power EMC. From the suburbs to rural farming communities, Georgia is enjoying the benefits of a more sustainable future through the power of solar energy. Available from 38 of Georgia's member-owned electric membership cooperatives, or EMCs, these not-for-profit utilities are harnessing the sun's energy to bring clean, renewable, and affordable electricity to 4.2 million Georgians. For more information, visit www.greenpoweremc.com or contact your local EMC. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. We interrupt this episode of Energy Matters to take you outdoors. On the road again. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce on the road with Associate Professor of Engineering at Northeastern University, Andy Myers. Andy, welcome to Energy Matters. 
Yeah, thanks, Casey. It's great to be here. Well, in the previous segment, Andy, we talked a bit about what's going on in Texas and and kind of, you know, is it Wynn's fault? And the short answer, of course, is no. Um, and I, I want to get your, your take on that here in a moment. But before we go there, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Who are you? What do you do? Um, and, and, you know, what are you doing related to energy that, uh, that we want to talk about here today? I did my PhD at Stanford University in earthquake engineering and then uh, became a professor at Northeastern University about 10 years ago. Uh, as soon as I became a professor, I started writing proposals and doing research on offshore and onshore wind energy. That's been my passion uh, and all of my research program revolves around uh, uh, wind energy, offshore and onshore. So how did uh, you go from earthquake engineering to wind energy? That, that seems like a big, big leap. Yeah, well, so uh, I had two years in between uh, grad school and being a professor where okay. I worked for a company that made software for the insurance industry, that, that uh, software that would estimate uh, damage due to earthquakes and hurricanes. And as part of that, we had a project where we had a look at damage to a wind farm. So okay. I started looking at the engineering aspects of wind farms. Uh, I've, I've always been passionate about uh, climate issues, and so I saw this, this way to connect my expertise with my passion, uh, and then was able to get some successful uh, proposals out there to get a research program going around this issue. Very cool. So you're doing that academically there at Northeastern University, but you're also co-founder of a company that's looking to, to kind of create uh, maybe a new way of doing wind. Tell us a little bit about that. About three years ago, I, I had a sabbatical at Danish Technical University, and they, they, have a, they have a whole department around wind energy. And so it's just a wonderful place where you get to meet experts in all the different aspects of uh, wind energy. So I had the kind of uh, support network and the space during my sabbatical to explore some uh, really innovative ideas. So a colleague and I started talking about a very novel architecture for a floating wind turbine. Uh, and so this is, a, uh, this is an architecture that, that can solve some of the uh, problems that exist with uh, conventional technology for, for offshore wind turbines at the moment. And so we think it could be a really big part of offshore wind becoming a enormous part of, of global decarbonization. So Denmark, they, they've got a lot of wind resources there in the North Sea, right? Yes. Yep. And, you know, we, we've talked on the show before about the UK and they're really putting an emphasis uh, with their uh, planning on offshore wind. Of course, they've got a lot of, of opportunity there, too. What's the situation like in, in Denmark with wind? I mean, are, are they you know, what, what kind of percentage of their grid is powered by the wind? And, and you know, so what does what does the outlook look like there? Yeah, Denmark is uh, is incredible in their uh, in their worldwide reach in wind. Um, Vestas is a Danish company, and they're mm -hmm. one of the biggest turbine OEMs. Uh, Orsted is a is an offshore wind developer, biggest uh, in the world. Um, so so wind just kind of penetrates all around uh, Denmark. Uh, wind energy technology penetrates all around Denmark. Um, the, the kind of concept that everyone knows about when, when they think of a wind turbine, the one that you see when you're, when you're driving uh, and see a wind farm, that's called the Danish concept uh, of a wind turbine. Hmm. So uh, wind energy is a really big deal in Denmark. And, and the fact that their, 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 their technical university, Danish technical university, has a whole department completely focused around wind energy is, is not something we have here uh, in the United States. So in terms of percentage, uh, I'm not exactly sure. It's uh, 50 or more. Uh, it's, wow. it's, it's, it's a large percentage. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, a couple of years ago, I did a road trip with my family. We started in Portland, Oregon, and worked our way back across the country, kind of across the northern tier, uh, Montana, Colorado, uh, Nebraska, um, and, and, you know, back on down to Georgia. And I had done some of that route you know, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. And one of the things that really struck me the most when we did this a couple of years ago is how much wind energy had been installed. I mean, it was very rare 20 years ago to see a wind turbine and they were just all over the place in the west on this trip and and you know it's incredible we don't have a lot of that in georgia really any of it uh right now but you know out west wind is a significant part of their mix yeah it's been uh it's been a really exciting 
uh, topic to study for the past 10 years. I mean, it's just exploding. Uh, and, 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 and that's the onshore part that you're talking about, which, right. which, which also is exploding. But, but, but I, I look at the opportunity offshore in the United States and I see all the action that's happening with leases that are being uh, purchased by, by worldwide leaders in, in development of offshore wind. And I just feel that we are poised uh, for explosive growth of, of this industry here in the U.S., yeah, so I, I want to come back to the offshore wind potential here in a little bit, because as as some of our regular listeners know, really, that's kind of where the potential lies for Georgia as far as wind energy goes. And, and I want to talk about what that might look like to actually develop. Um, but before we do that, you know, as I mentioned in our first segment, we talked a little bit about what's going on in Texas uh, earlier this week um, with the power outages. And, you know, there have been plenty of people who have said, oh, it's, it's wind energy fault. And, and the truth of the matter is that every generation source has been impacted by the extremely cold weather in Texas, um, wind and even more so thermal resources, coal, natural gas and, and nuclear. You know, as I mentioned, I've seen wind turbines onshore, right, in very cold climates, right, in the northern states. Uh, Minnesota's got a ton of wind. North Dakota's got a ton of wind. Uh, I imagine some of these offshore wind turbines in the North Sea and and elsewhere in Europe uh, face really tough climactic conditions. Tell us a little bit about, you know, as you think about what's going on in Texas, what do our listeners need to know about, you know, wind energy and its ability to perform and, you know, really really, really cold climates. And is there anything that Texas could do differently to make sure that they could use more of their wind energy should this happen again in the future? Yeah. So um, wind turbine blades are very much like uh, an airfoil on an airplane uh, wing. Um, and, and if you've been uh, you know, about to take off on a very cold day, airplane wings ice up and they get de-iced. And the same thing happens with a wind turbine. And if you get ice on the wind turbine blade, it doesn't have the right weight anymore. Doesn't have the right shape, and and so it's it's it means that you can't you you can't operate them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are technical solutions that that wind turbines in very cold uh, climates uh, use, and and it involves uh, having blades that that have some heating elements in them, so that so that the ice can't build up. It adds uh, cost uh, to the uh, unit, but there there are uh, solutions in place. One of the things that, that, that I've been thinking about with this with this Texas situation is wind is intermittent by its nature, right? That's that, that's, an, that's a, a facet of wind energy that lots of people are working to overcome, and, and there's some great work uh, in, in place to overcome it. And I sort of see this as kind of similar to normal intermittency. Um, you know, we need to have a, a flexible grid. We need to have uh, distributed storage uh, so that we can handle normal intermittency with renewables and also intermittency like this. So when you think about kind of that intermittent profile of wind and, and you know, what Texas might do differently, is it a case of, well, they really need to go back and make sure that, you know, maybe existing wind turbines and certainly future turbines have those heating elements in the blades so that icing isn't an issue? Or is it more something where, you know, if they've got storage for the wind farms, that's something that is more cost effective because it could be used uh, more on a day-to-day basis? I mean, what, what's your kind of take on on the economics of it? Where should they go with this? Uh, my my view is that uh, this is a great reminder of uh, grid infrastructure issues, and uh, I think that 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 they could avoid this problem in the future and also solve other problems by investing in a more resilient grid, a more flexible grid, and more distributed storage. Um, you know, th- there are lots of technical issues we have to sort out with all of those uh, with all of those ideas, but. This is just great motivation, I think, to get more folks thinking about those things because it'll help with the icing and it will also help with the with the the more regular intermittent issues with renewables. Yeah. And I mentioned in our first segment, you know, Texas is is a deregulated electric market. And so you've got deregulated generators, you've got monopoly utilities that move the power and then you've got uh, retail electric providers that actually, you know, are who people buy their power from. And one of the interesting things in the market is that those utilities 
utilities, because they're regulated, they're not allowed to compete on the generation side. So I've actually worked with clients in Texas who want to put storage at their substations to provide grid benefits and resilience and things like that. And the the Public Utilities Commission there said, nope, you can't do it because that's competing with generation. Um, And certainly you can put storage with your wind farms or with your solar farms uh, to, you know, provide some backup there. But I'm wondering if, if, you know, the state of Texas might be reconsidering, you know, allowing storage to be owned and operated by utilities just to help provide backup for this kind of event. It seems to me like, you know, the more storage that's on the grid, uh, the more ability that there is to ride out things that are, are kind of disruptive like this. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned with uh, my uh, startup idea, which is trying to develop a new floating wind turbine, uh, I'm finding I- innovating within electricity making is, is, is a difficult prospect. And if, if this can help, to, this, this issue in Texas can help to motivate people to make innovation easier and changes e- easier to integrate into uh, electricity making, uh, I think that would, and, and exactly the kind of changes that you're citing there, if those if, if, if policies could be in place so that things like that could happen easier, it would make a world of difference. Excellent. Well, folks, you're listening to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce here today with Andy Myers from Northeastern University. Stick around for uh, another segment. We're going to come back and talk about the potential for wind energy right here in Georgia and what offshore wind looks like. You can find the show at Matters Radio on Twitter. I'm at Casey Boyce on Twitter. Stick around. You're listening to Energy Matters. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure you receive the highest quality solar energy system in the industry. They're proud to work with you before, during, and after the install, blending customer demand, system capability, and expertise to provide the best service possible. Contact them today at 770-485-7438 or creativesolarusa.com. Tim Eccles for Marlin Gas Services. As the port continues to grow, more and more trucking companies are using natural gas in their trucks instead of diesel. Marlin Gas Services is helping to usher in this clean opportunity. With their specialized rigs, they create virtual pipelines with all the equipment and expertise to provide reliable, clean natural gas. Marlin Gas is the company that gas utilities, pipeline companies, and industrial facilities turn to. See MarlinGas.com for more information. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMVW Auto Sales. COVID-19 has changed everything, even buying a car. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, not only sanitizes every car, but you can buy it online and they'll trailer it to your home anywhere in Georgia and surrounding states. They've used electric cars, plug-in hybrids, and traditional hybrids. Check out the inventory at ev-hybrid.com. That's ev-hybrid.com. They have a three-day loaner period as well if you want to make sure electric works for you. Check them out at ev-hybrid.com. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. Today on the road with Andy Myers, Associate Professor of Engineering at Northeastern University. And today we are talking wind energy. And Andy, you're located up in the the Boston area, right? And and you guys actually have a decent amount of offshore wind, uh, both potential and and that's being built, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, being in Massachusetts and having my professional world revolve around offshore wind has been a great mix because uh, Massachusetts has has an unbelievable uh, resource of offshore wind capacity. Uh, it has relatively shallow water, which is, uh, which is a necessity for uh, installing wind turbines with current technology that is fixed to the seafloor. And it also has proximity to population centers. So it's the perfect balance. Uh, it's the perfect mix of features that you want uh, in a site where offshore wind could be a very viable resource. Um, the state has also been really uh, out in front in creating legislation to make this industry uh, happen here. So it must be five years ago now, they passed a law that uh, authorized uh, 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind capacity to be procured by the state. Uh, and they've already have two uh, winning projects. So there's two 800 megawatt projects 
uh, one from Mayflower Wind and one from Vineyard Wind that have been awarded and are underway. And it's just so exciting to see something this big, uh, this important for the U.S. and for the world uh, happening so close to where I live. And so I know that, you know, people have expressed concern, um, you know, about the visual impact of wind turbines for these projects that are happening up near you. What, what do they look like if you're standing on the shore and, and kind of looking out towards where they're building these? What do you see? Yeah, the uh, the 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 current developments. So so viewshed is is, uh, you know, 10, 20 miles, something like that. Uh, it depends, you know, how mm-hmm. tall your uh, wind turbine is for how, how far you can see it. Um, these are uh, beyond the horizon. So that viewshed issue um, is can be avoided. It's actually one of the one of the nice features of offshore wind is that you can avoid viewshed issues. There are other conflicting use issues uh, with the ocean, but the viewshed issue is one that if you are at development sites that are far enough away you can avoid. Well, that's great to hear because, you know, I don't know if you've been down here to uh, the the coast on uh, in Georgia, but we've got some really spectacular coastal islands and uh, great views out to the ocean and, and really special places. So uh, we'll talk about wind here in Georgia in a little bit, but good to hear that it's not something that's going to, you know, be terribly noticeable, if at all, right, in the, in the case in Massachusetts. So I want to come back. You mentioned that these wind turbines, when you install them offshore, that they're actually anchored to the ocean floor. And I don't know how many people know that, right? I, I, I suspect I thought this right at, at one point that, you know, they kind of were out there floating, but but how do they actually install wind turbines right now? Almost all the wind turbines across the world and, and across the world means Europe and China because the U.S. has two tiny uh, demonstration projects at the moment with, with you know, full, full utility scale projects in the work are supported by a foundation that's called a monopile. It's literally just a hollow circular steel tube, enormous, five, six, seven, eight meters in diameter that gets pile driven into the seafloor hmm. and 20, 30 meters enough so that it can hold it fixed in place. It takes a very specialized vessel uh, to uh, to install these these units. It's called a jackup ship. And so a jackup ship literally sends, it's a ship, but it literally sends structural supports down to the seafloor, jacks the whole ship up, and then that supports a crane that can then be used to assemble the tower and turbine on top of this uh, monopile foundation. Wow, that's incredible. And, and my understanding is that the way that these turbines are installed actually is very conducive to you know bringing on folks who have expertise in this kind of you know offshore construction. So to be more specific, um, you know people who have worked in oil or gas offshore, you know they kind of have the skills that are necessary to build offshore wind. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. has uh, workforce, uh, uh, you know, engineering expertise uh, in in, in, uh, in uh, offshore oil and gas, and a lot of that translates to offshore wind. And so uh, that 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 is one thing that excites me for our ability to make this a big deal quickly. You are the co-founder of a company that spun out of Northeastern called T Omega Wind, um, which approaches things a little bit differently. Uh, what are some of the problems with the current approach, and and what did you? set out to solve with T Omega Wind? So uh, T Omega Wind is commercializing a novel architecture for a floating wind turbine. So this is a wind turbine that does not have structural support that extends down to the seafloor. Rather, it floats on the ocean surface like a ship. Uh, and, it, and it's moored. It, it, it holds its position through a mooring line connected to an anchor. So this has large benefits in that you can now install offshore wind turbines in locations with deeper water. So when you have to have the structure extend all the way to the seafloor, you're limited in the water depths where you can uh, install offshore wind turbines to something like 60 meters of water depth or so. So there are lots of folks who see this potential to unlock a, a much larger offshore wind resource by developing floating turbine technology. Uh, we are trying to do two things that will uh, hopefully unlock more of the resource. We are trying to make offshore wind turbines cheaper. The way that we're doing that is trying to make the structure as light as possible. And the way that we think we can make it so light is by doing a custom design for the ocean. So instead of taking an onshore turbine wind architecture and moving it offshore, we are completely redesigning the wind turbine and trying to optimize it for the ocean, leading to the potential for a much lighter and a much cheaper structure. At the same time, we're also trying to make a wind turbine that is much easier to make to avoid supply chain bottlenecks that are currently limiting how many of these turbines we can make. Because when you start to look at global decarbonization, you start to look how much 
clean energy we need, and you start to think how much could come from offshore wind, you quickly realize how many of these we need to make and how quickly. So that's a central part of our philosophy, is how to make manufacturing of offshore wind turbines easier, more distributed, and to make it possible so that existing capabilities that exist across the world, existing boatyards could start to produce these immediately. Do you have a sense, uh, you know, at this point of what that offshore design kind of looks like? Is it it's still kind of the single pole holding up a three bladed uh, turbine attached to a generator? Or, you know, is it something that looks uh, fundamentally different from what, you know, many of our listeners may be familiar with? It's, it's a fundamentally different architecture. So uh, our concept uh, is, is a different paradigm than the one that has been evolved very successfully onshore. So onshore, you have a skinny tower. And the reason you have a skinny right. tower is because your, your rotor plane, the blades, have to move around to face the wind. And if they're moving around up at the top of the tower, if they're moving into any position to face the wind in any direction, you need to have a very skinny tower so that the blades don't hit the tower as it moves around. Makes sense. But when you're floating in the water, it's, it's possible that you can have the whole entire system, the rotor and the support structure, rotate as a whole because it's, 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 it's floating in the water. And just like a ship at anchor, is pushed to the downwind direction, a wind turbine will also be pushed into the downwind direction. So this lets us have a much wider, more efficient support structure since the whole system is rotating as a whole to orient to the wind. Gotcha. And so you don't have to worry about that bearing kind of up at the top where the generator unit is to allow that rotation. Very interesting. Exactly. Let's come back to, you know, what this means for our listeners. And, you know, we've talked briefly on the show before that the Southern Company, uh, which is the owner of Georgia Power, uh, has leased a couple of blocks for offshore wind uh, off the, the Georgia coast. And, um, you know, I, I've talk with some folks on Twitter when, when the, you know, I think and they think we might actually see offshore wind developed here, and it's probably on the order of a decade or so. Um, but Andy, when you look at the United States, right, and, and the northeastern seaboard and the South Atlantic and the Gulf Coast and then off the West Coast, what do you see as far as, as the potential for offshore wind? And, you know, is, is there a difference based on where you are in terms of what kind of technology is most appropriate, right? Like, the traditional technology versus the kind of thing that you're working on? Overall, I, I see a huge potential for offshore wind. Uh, in, in, in addition to the, to the features I mentioned earlier about it's a, it's a huge power capacity, it's located in the right locations. Another huge benefit is there's no land usage issues. All the complexities with land ownership with other uh, potential sources of clean energy uh, are avoided when you are offshore. There are other conflicting use issues, but, but land ownership is not one of them. All of those things things make me think that offshore wind could be a big part of decarbonization. When you start to look at, at what technology makes sense where, the first issue that comes to mind is how deep is the water. And so in, in, in broad strokes, the Atlantic coast has a broad outer continental shelf. We have, uh, we have many, many miles of relatively shallow water in Massachusetts and also in Georgia. So, so, so that means that you are, it's possible that you could use fixed bottom technology along just about all of the East Coast, except for when you get up into Maine. Maine, Maine gets deep water uh, relatively close to shore. But then you look at the West Coast, the West Coast has basically no chance for an industry based on uh, fixed turbine technology because the water gets so deep, so close to shore. So on the West Coast, uh, floating, floating wind turbines uh, is the technology solution that has to be developed and commercialized to start to harvest this resource. When, when you think about, let's, let's stick with the East Coast for a moment, is there a limit to how far out you can place these things? So if we say, okay, and I'm just spitballing here, right? Georgia, we've got relatively shallow water, as you say, relatively far out. You can use the standard design, like you described, drive the, the pile into the, the ocean floor, kind of your standard wind turbine. Could you go out beyond the shelf and install uh, the floating turbines that you're working on? Or are there limitations based on the length of the, the transmission cable or anything like that, that that would kind of get in the way of, of utilizing that resource? Yeah. There are lots of costs which scale with distance to shore. Uh, transmission, like you mentioned, is one. Maintenance and construction, uh, that much further you're, you have to travel to get to the project. That is one issue. Another issue is uh, federal waters go 200 miles off the coast. Outside of that, you're in international waters, and there it's unclear what can happen in, in international waters. Let me actually stop you there. We're going to take a break here, and we'll come back in a moment to finish this conversation. You are listening to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. Stick around for our last segment with Andy Myers. 
Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your one, two, or five dollar checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. EV. Hybrid.com. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Better Tomorrow Solar. Imagine a world powered by sunlight. Imagine your home powered by sunlight. Better Tomorrow Solar has a passion for helping you see this for yourself. They've worked hard to overcome the chief obstacle to solar adoption, its initial cost. In some cases, they can install your solar panels at no cost, then charge a predetermined, stable rate for the energy used. In other cases, Better Tomorrow Solar has creative ways to finance the installation so the monthly payments are lower than the energy savings. Find out more at Better Tomorrow Solar. That's bettertomorrowsolar.com and see how you make your world better. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. We are finishing up the show today talking with Andy Myers from Northeastern University and co-founder of T Omega Wind. And Andy, just before the break, we were talking about pirate wind turbines, those that were out in international waters 200 miles from the coast. So um, you were you were sharing some of the challenges of creating pirate wind turbines. So so why don't you tell, uh, kind of continue that? What, what, what's the problem with going out really far with some of these wind turbines? Yeah, well, uh, pirate's a great word. Uh, I, I, I think just the fact that it's, it's unclear, jurisdictions are unclear, um, international uh, law is unclear. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm no expert in, in, in what you're allowed to do in international waters. Um, but but every- Andy, you can do anything in international <laughs> waters. <laughs> but uh, every development I've seen so far is within the jurisdiction in the United States, is within the jurisdiction of the United States that uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management controls, which is within that 200 nautical mile band. Again, we're, we're kind of talking about the different resources for offshore wind across the country. And, and you know, you had mentioned the eastern seaboard. Um, we have relatively shallow waters, so we can use conventional uh, turbines out west uh, on the west coast. That's not really an option there. Have you done any work on kind of the overall generation potential? So as you think about, you know, you mentioned early on in in our discussion, you're really excited about the potential for wind to help with decarbonization. And when you think specifically of offshore wind, you know, is this going to be kind of a, a minor player in our renewable energy future? Or is this going to be where all of the action is? Like, give us a sense of scale uh, as it relates to, you know, how much generation we're going to need. Yeah, so a couple of, of points, uh, great, great great question, and a couple of points I'd like to make is, is first is the scale of the resource. So if you just look at United States waters on the Atlantic coast, the capacity of that power is enough to power the whole country. So there is an enormous wow. power capacity offshore. That's, that's number one. Number two is I think that if offshore wind energy could be made cheaper, and if the manufacturing issues that are currently limiting how fast we can make offshore wind turbines could be avoided, that a huge percentage of coastal population energy could come from offshore wind. You know, perhaps something as high as 50% of, of, coast, of, of coastal populations, which are about half the world live near the coasts. So, so you're talking about some really big numbers of the potential if offshore wind were cheaper and easier to make. And, you know, here in Georgia, we have a increasing amount of solar on our grid here. It's one of the the great resources we have. Great success story for rural Georgia. Great success story for, you know, all of us who who buy electricity in Georgia. Um, But of course, the sun doesn't shine at night and when it's cloudy and, you know, it it is an intermittent resource as well as wind. Um, When you think about onshore wind and offshore wind and kind of how that plays with solar, how do their characteristics differ in in terms of 
you know, when they're generating power and, and how that helps us make this transition to have more renewables more of the time on the grid? Yeah. Uh, so great, great contrast. Um, uh, solar is amazing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievably cheap and it's unbelievably how cheap it's become and how, how, how quickly the costs uh, are falling. Um, solar, like you mentioned, regular, I mean, every night you aren't, you aren't getting solar. Um, I'm not sure about Georgia capacity factors, but up in Massachusetts, solar, I think is something like 18% capacity factor. Uh, so, so, and and just real quickly for our listeners, capacity factor is the amount of energy that it produces versus the amount that it could if it was going twenty four seven. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, when you look at offshore wind resource, uh, you you tend to get higher capacity factors. So so a, a good site offshore gives you a capacity factor of about fifty uh, percent. Um, but still, you know, both need so uh, need, need need storage uh, to be to be if, if they're going to be a significant. A percentage of uh, of energy supply, um, and uh, and and they are nice complements to each other. Uh, the fact that, that 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 wind blows at night is a is a nice complement to solar. The other the other issue that you know that I think about that that makes me like offshore is is just that it's not using up land, uh, and so you know solar has that issue is that it it, it uses up land for its generation. So we, we talked earlier about the view shed and that, you know, for most of this offshore wind, it's not an issue. It's over the horizon. People aren't able to see it from uh, from the coast. And, and so it really doesn't uh, have any any challenges there. Are there other environmental problems that, you know, we as Georgians or we as Americans should be thinking about as it relates to installing uh, additional offshore wind capacity? Certainly. Yeah, there are there are the, the oceans have uh, many uses, including just being a a, a, a natural wonder uh, that that we want to keep beautiful and, and wonderful. Um, so the the kind of there's so the, there are many uh, conflicting use issues with with offshore wind that are that are worth uh, discussing. The the ones that are coming to my mind first are uh, during construction, uh, especially with monopile foundations. Those are the ones that get hammered into the into the seafloor. Uh, it's a very loud process, and and that can disrupt uh, issues like uh, whale migration. Uh, and and things like that. Uh, in in addition, uh, this is a change to to the fishing industry uh, and and how uh, it will have to uh, you know work with these 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 offshore wind farms. And so so how offshore wind and fishing work together uh, is another uh, situation that that needs to be discussed. Um, navigation, defense, the, the ocean has many, many uses. And so it's important to try to come up with something where uh, where all parties are, are satisfied. Well, certainly something that, you know, I imagine folks down here in Georgia are, are thinking about. We've got uh, the naval base uh, for submarines down there in, in Brunswick, Kings Bay, um, one of our markets where, where we are. And, um, you know, I know that uh, the ocean's important part for them. We also have whale migration routes off the coast of Georgia. Um, so, you know, uh, certainly something to be looking at. But I think what you're pointing at is, you know, no no energy resource is without its challenges and everything kind of needs to be thought through in context in terms of how we're using the land, how we're using the water and what the impact of the environment is. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just want to come back real quickly. You mentioned, you know, good offshore wind sites have a capacity factor of around 50 percent. And just to put this in context for our listeners, if you look at the overall national power grid and all of the infrastructure on it, all of the generation, all of the transmission, all of the substations, all the wires that go to your house, all the transformers out on the street, that's got a capacity factor of about 50 percent. So, um, you know, it, it sounds, Andy, that that, you know, wind is potentially right on par with kind of what we're doing right now. Of course, there are the intermittency issues that you mentioned, and, and we can deal with that with battery storage, as we've talked about. Um, you know, on the show, we've also talked about demand response, which continues to be a horrible name, but it's this idea that, you know, as uh, generation mix changes or the availability of power changes, that, you know, people can do things that don't really impact their lives, but help balance the supply and demand on the power grid. So that might be, you know, preheating or pre-cooling their home uh, when there's a lot of energy and then kind of dialing back the thermostat briefly while uh, there's not as much energy on the grid. Um, could be industrial sites that are, you know, slowing the speed of their pumps, things like that. But there's a lot of opportunity to create more flexibility in addition to the batteries that uh, that we've talked about here and accommodate some of these renewable resources, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, th there are so many uh, I great ideas uh, that make me, uh, optimistic that that we are close to uh, to overcoming this. 
Well, Andy, we've just got a couple of minutes left in the show, and I want to take a totally different tack here um, because I understand that you are an EV driver. Yes, that's true. And a, and an e-bike rider and an e-bike rider. OK, so we've got about two, three minutes here, and I want you to just tell our listeners what your experience has been with electric transportation, your bike and your car. Uh, unbelievably awesome. Uh, yeah. So um, we, we have a we have a, a gas van and we have a, a small electric vehicle. And my wife and I are always arguing who gets to get the EV if both of us need to uh, take a car. It is fun to drive. It is maintenance-free. Uh, it is cheap. Uh, the, the, amount, the amount that we pay to, uh, to, to fuel our, our driving uh, is, is very little. Um, it, it, it has, uh, it, it's just a really wonderful experience, and I'm so glad that I bought one. That's awesome. And have, have you had any, uh, you know, kind of good stories or bad stories from your time with an EV, like something that's really surprised you or something that's been kind of not as you expected? Good question. You know, uh, getting used to the range anxiety uh, took a little bit of time, but now I'm there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally dialed in to what the range of my EV is, and I've got systems in place to uh, deal with it. And we know exactly when it's the right car to use and when it's not. Um, so that took a little getting used to, but, but, but I feel now, uh, it's, it's a non-issue. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I, and I experienced something similar when I first started driving an EV, right? It's a shift in mindset from, you know, you kind of drive until the gas light comes on and then you refuel it to saying, okay, you know, do I have enough range to get to where I'm going to charge next? And if so, no problem. Right. And, and you just do your thing, but it's, it's sort of a different mindset that you've got to get into first. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you commute on an e-bike too, right? even in the cold and in winter up there? What's an e-bike like to ride on? Yeah, an e-bike. Uh, so I have a I have an e-bike with a 500 watt motor, which I looked up and that's sort of like having two Tour de France riders charioting me to uh, to, to work every day. So uh, it is, Man. Uh, and it's silent too. So you sort of forget that there's a motor and you just think you're an incredible cyclist. Uh, so it's a, it's it's uh, it takes my one hour bicycle commute on a normal bike to about 35 minutes. Uh, it's silent. Uh, it's 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 a it's a wonderful uh, way to get to work. You are also getting exercise, but it doesn't take as long as it otherwise would. That's awesome. Well, Andy Myers, thanks so much for joining us today on Energy Matters and sharing your expertise on all things wind and even all things electric transportation. Yeah, thanks, Casey. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Well, you've been listening to Energy Matters. Find the show at Matters Radio on Twitter. I'm at Casey Boyce on Twitter. And of course, you can stream or download your favorite episodes at WGAU radio slash Energy Matters. Have a great day, everyone. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we sold and donated millions of pairs. To sell and donate a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up, adding comfort innovations along the way. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate millions of pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash comfy.